From PPRO, this is Payments Radio, the show for and about the payments industry, covering news, interviewing experts, and talking about all the ways the world pays. This week, we bring you Frictionless Payments, the make or break factor in the esports and e gaming industries. My name is Megan Johnson, your host of Payments Radio, and today I'm joined by Matt Jackson, head of EMEA Partner Development for PPRO. Hey, Matt, how are you doing today? Hey, Megan, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really, really good. Uh, excited to, to jump into this conversation. It's uh, a fascinating area. Yeah, it's it's quite an interesting one. I mean, I think esports and e-gaming, these industries aren't necessarily topics that are usually top of mind for us in payments or, or fintech, but you know, they're intertwined, they're growing immensely. Um and yeah, with COVID and everything, it's just uh, a whole new ball game. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So it's, they're, they're not top of mind really in, in general public consciousness, but I think that will, that will soon change. And COVID maybe is a, an accelerant factor in that, in that, you know, it's hard to watch live sports now. So, so people are looking for different ways to be entertained and, and e-gaming is certainly one of them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I always, you know, a lot of the work I do looks at, you know, how to create good frictionless customer experiences. And, you know, at the heart of what we'll be discussing today is, you know, the importance of having a frictionless payment experience. Um, and we'll kind of discuss that further, you know, the importance of local payment methods, where this uh, industry can be uh, heading in the future. But just wanted to share with, with the audience um, some interesting statistics, um, just to get everyone excited about e-games and, and e-sports. Um, so Area of Valor earned $150 million worth of downloadable content in one month. Um, we'll discuss a bit more what downloadable content is and why it's so important to the producers of games. And Clash of Clans generated $2.3 billion in revenue. Um, that was six years ago in 2015. So no doubt those numbers are significantly higher. I'm sure everyone's heard of Fortnite, um, you know, one of the more popular games. I think, you know, any parents with kids have certainly heard about Fortnite. I don't even have kids, but I know about it through my nephew. Um, so a Fortnite phenomenon, Tyler Ninja Blevins made $17 million last year. Um, 28 years old, but he's earned less than $100,000 from actually competing. So, you know, these leading gamers, there's a huge industry for them um, in terms of, you know, influencing um, and monetizing their uh, cult-like status. And around the world, 71 million people watch esports. And kind of this last crazy statistic is that esports um, or e-gaming requires more actions per minute than any other sport in the world. So for Asian players, it's the norm to have around 200 to 300 actions per minute. And the fastest player in StarCraft II performed um, 200 actions per minute. So this is crazy, Matt. Are you, are you a gamer at all? I'm not a gamer. Um, very interestingly, I have a couple of young children and, and one yep. of them is showing signs of wanting to interact in games. And um, I think that that leads me to understand a little bit some of the challenges from a parental or an adult mm -hmm. uh, point of view around that. But um, there's 
I think with children, and, and maybe we'll go a little bit off topic here, is that um, the, the view we take is tech often gets a bad rap when it comes to children, like keep your kids away from screens, don't let them have too much screen time. But I think in the world that children are growing up in now, uh, they're going to need to interact with devices. They're going to need to have those skills. And gaming can perhaps be a way to give them those skills. Um, and, you know, being able to interact with, with devices and control different devices, I think, is... Um, just something that's going to become more and more important and, and gaming will play a part of that. Um, and <laughs> fascinating, 71 people watch esports, but my personal view is that it's still like a, a niche or a smaller industry. But at those sorts of numbers, you can't really consider it that. And um, yeah, really fascinating conversation to be had. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I, I think a lot of the, the cult like role play games as well, you know, they they equip you regardless of age with kind of, you know, management skills, teamwork skills. And I mean, it's, yeah, digital and I guess a bit uh, fantastical, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's still, I think, you know, an important part in, in, in development for children and, and adults alike. Um, so I think before we kind of kick off, it would be good to touch upon a few terms um, that the listeners may not be aware of. Um, I know I certainly wasn't aware of them. I'm not a gamer myself. Um, so the first is downloadable content. Um, and this is where the majority of the um, game producers make their money. And this is what the majority of the game players are spending money on. So these are microtransactions that cost between 99 cents to about $10, euros, pounds. Um, so while the game in itself may be free, um, the games are offering these special or rare items that can be purchased for a cost. Um, and these are the majority of these microtransactions. And 28% of gamers aged 13 to 54 purchased additional content at least once in the past three months. And then there's another um, kind of definition or uh, interesting area called loot boxes. And loot boxes give randomized rewards um, that players can only acquire from grinding or purchasing them with real money. And they're a bit controversial because some countries now label um, this whole concept of loot boxes um, as gambling in video games. So, you know, I think this goes back to your point of, you know, how do you approach payments um, given the fact that, you know, the majority of players are, you know, perhaps under 18, um, you know, could be teenagers, they may not necessarily have access to uh, credit cards or anything. So, yeah, it'd be great to get your perspective on, you know, how do you cater to a unique uh, customer segment? Yeah, and, and certainly there's lots of different uh, LPNs that spring up as use cases that that play in that. So PaySafe Card, for instance, has always been um, focused on a way to uh, bring uh, people ability to pay online that wouldn't otherwise have it. So young people that uh, want to use their pocket money to buy a PaySafe Card voucher and use that to to purchase something within a game or or in a in a digital sense so i think again you know this isn't just about us selling lpms we're, we're certainly um trying to talk very broadly about the payments industry but i think this sector is one that lends itself very well to um local payment methods and can you talk the the pay safe um card what, what's the whole premise behind this 
So that is um, uh, an individual can can go and purchase with cash or, or, or real money um, from a kiosk or from a news agent, depending on, on where you are, and you mm -hmm. receive a voucher. Um, you would take that voucher, go online and um, click through the, the payment journey and at some point be asked to enter that voucher code. So it's, it's bringing cash into the digital sphere. Gotcha. So, I mean, are, are, are parents and adults typically buying these vouchers as gifts for kids? I mean, if we're just focusing on the kind of, um, yeah, younger segment. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So I think that's one use case or, or children are using their pocket money and, and purchasing uh, vouchers for themselves. And, and that with it, lots of challenges around how do you make sure that um people aren't then using those vouchers in areas that they shouldn't be but uh there's there's lots of different ways that that is being handled now with paysafe card accounts and things like that and, and mm -hmm. these voucher codes are, are constantly um expanding their use case and their ability to serve these sectors of the markets in a safe and, and regulated way yeah and are they are they digital yet, or are they primarily just you? You have to physically get these vouchers. Uh, so, depending on which of the vouchers you're using, yeah, there's digital propositions as well. So, uh, apps came in, and these uh, vouchers responded to that by by creating digital versions of their vouchers. Yes. Makes sense. Okay. And what are some of the other kind of use cases or payment experiences within esports or, or e games? Yeah, I think that there's lots and, and I've prepared for this conversation today by trying to talk to a few gamers. And, and one thing that um, they were keen to highlight is there's, there's effectively a couple of different gaming types of people. So you get the mobile gamers that uh, will game on their phone and can do that mm -hmm. anywhere. Um, and then you get some uh, another sector of gamers who um, might have really high-powered PCs or some of the consoles and will game and, and make an evening out of it or an afternoon at home um, in a fixed place. And I think they lend themselves to, to both different use cases. And so mm -hmm. sometimes uh, the fixed gamer may invest in um, equipment that allows them to game more effectively. They may also yep. be paying in some of the secondary markets around gaming, like watching people stream so that they can learn for the, from them to improve their own gaming. Whereas mm -hmm. the mobile gamers is much more around downloadable content or removing yep. adverts from their gaming experience uh, or allowing to be um, this to that game offline so you don't have to be connected to the internet to do that. Okay, that makes sense. And what about this kind of whole phenomenon of... Uh thousands of people packing into stadiums and, and watching someone play games. <laughs> yeah, yeah, alien to me, big sports fan. And um, the thought of going to to watch uh, people play games is, is somewhat alien to me, um, but it's huge. Um, yeah. Someone who I spoke to within Pipro travels uh, across Europe to go and watch these events and villages get set up around them and tens if not hundreds of thousands of people will flock to a city to go and watch a festival of these games um and then you get all other markets springing up around that with uh, merchandise being sold and mm -hmm. you know uh, collectibles and then you get into the nft space around um collectibles and if yeah. you're uh, if you're used to watching games digitally then you're probably very keen by collectibles in a digital sense in, in terms of the nfts as well it's very yeah. very um cutting edge in in many ways 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I was reading that, you know, Samsung sponsors a few of the professional teams in, in South Korea. So, yeah, a lot of hype and excitement and, and money in this space. Yeah, big companies. And it's not a far cry for us to start thinking of, you know, is corporate hospitality going to spring up about, are you going to, instead of taking people to sports games, are you going to take them to esports games to watch? And I think, um, Megan, before we recorded, we discussed how esports are trying to become an Olympic event. Is that, mm -hmm. you know, that doesn't feel a far cry anymore in a way it may have done 10 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now that we've kind of looked through all the different um, areas for payments and, and payment use cases, how important are LPMs? Like, uh, how, how important is a frictionless experience? Does it vary by use case? Are some markets harder to crack than others? In, in many ways, I think, at the core of any payments experience is providing the consumer what they want. So um, it, it could be argued that in, in these use cases, LPMs play uh, an increasingly important part because of the different types of people that are playing these games and, and the different use cases that will serve. They may not have access to credit cards. They may want to use LPMs as a way of limiting their spend. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you, you, you know, um, payment methods that, that provide them with that use case. Uh, it's also truly international. So I think the top three markets are South Korea, um, the US and potentially Germany and mm -hmm. the, the types of people um, and their attitudes towards uh, credit or, or different payment methods vary hugely. Um, yeah. You know, in, the, in Asia, we're, we're very used to seeing e-wallets, whereas in America, there's really no local payment methods outside of PayPal and, and Venmo. Yeah. Uh, so, so they play that part. And I mean, you, you mentioned, um, you know, e-wallet. So I guess, you know, is a gamer that has access to an e-wallet in a position to have a better, um, you know, less friction uh, focused experience when it comes to, you know, I, I imagine being a gamer and, you know, you're really in the zone and then some rare item comes up that you know you just need to get uh you know needing to top up the account you're so sick of seeing the ads or something would you say that you know consumers that have these e-wallets are in a better position than you know having to work with a credit card or a different type of payment method i would, that would really depend on the implementation from their payment service provider mm -hmm. so i think in the market, payment service providers are now having to focus on offering that really great front-end experience yeah. to their merchant and the merchant's consumers. And that's where all investment dollars and all their R&D is going in. How can they, you know, shave seconds or clicks off of the uh, checkout flow? And that's not just on one particular payment method. That's across all of their payment methods. And the PSPs that are good at it tend to be the PSPs that win. So I don't think having an e-wallet over a credit card is is necessarily mm -hmm. um, a different a differentiator there. Yep. I think one of the the aspects to consider though is the right amount of friction. Mm -hmm. So you you know, especially as a as a parent, you hear lots of stories about how a child was given unfettered access to a <laughs> phone or a console and runs up hundreds or thousands of pounds or or euros of. Yep. Uh, uh, bills from buying these things so it's always about having the right amount of friction and i think that that is really for any payment journey uh for a you know a 99 cent transaction you probably don't want too much friction but if you're buying a loot box for 100 pounds or yeah. a v for 1500 pounds you want an element of friction there that allows for that feeling of security for uh ultimately whoever's paying 
at what stage do the um, do the companies creating these games, you know, designing for mobile experience, um, PC experience, when do they have to start thinking about LPMs, I guess? Is it something that's in the very early stage of product development or are they typically, you know, starting off in one market then expanding a bit further or, yeah, how, I guess, when does LPM come front of mind? Yeah, my understanding is that because of the e-distribution of these games now, so using the technologies that we have, a game doesn't have to be restricted to a market um, mm. necessarily. They're easily distributed across digital channels. So it yeah. needs to be front and center. They're thinking of, you know, if we can if we can distribute our product to these markets, what do people want to pay with in those markets? And they need to offer that. So for me, it's a front and center um, consideration for them as soon as they're thinking about their distribution strategy. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And I guess, um, you know, moving on to the device manufacturers in this, you know, are they losing um, out on a uh, piece of an increasingly large pie? Um, you know, there's a lot of talk around, you know, the role of Apple and, and Google and, you know, the cut they take with in-app um, purchases. Is there anything, any controversies, any issues between, um, you know, the creators of games, gaming consoles and, and the big tech companies? Yeah, so uh, I'm not too aware of the commercial um, models that big gaming console companies use, but um I'm not worried about Sony or Microsoft making making <laughs> their money back from their consoles. Um, I think the really interesting point that you touched upon there is around uh, Apple and Google uh, app stores and that their insistence um, that they are offered as a payment method yeah. um, if the game is to be sold through them and they take a 30% cut of the payment. And um, Epic Games is a, is a huge uh, example of where someone with, you know, they're the creator of Fortnite, and mm. they they removed or they were removed from uh, both Apple and Google stores because yeah. they were happy with the cut. And I think they, they did a whole heap of work and tried to make the case that 8% is a fair um, yeah. payment uh, amount that they can take. Uh, but as it stands right now, you, you can't, play Fortnite on on your apple device uh, i do believe you can side load it to a google device okay um but it's a, it's a restricted user experience it's mm -hmm. a re very big thing for epic to, to take themselves off of the apple device and it really yeah, of course they value their ip uh but also have uh, enough of a business outside of the um apple ecosystem that yeah. they can afford to do that without uh you know missing out on too much revenue yeah, I was I was reading briefly into this and I saw that after the initial ban, some users were auctioning iPhones with Fortnite still installed that was they were selling for like tens of thousands of dollars. That's crackers, isn't it? It's, it's, it's insane. Wow. It's, yeah. But the market's there, you know. So I guess, you know, first quarter over of, of 2021, we're still in, in COVID times, you know, where do you see this market kind of, what's the next steps? What does the future hold? I think for this market, it's it's the ability to go truly mainstream and, and become front and center consciousness. And having looked at this really for the time over the past few weeks, it feels like that, that is, you know, months uh, away, not, not years. Um, uh, and, and what does truly mainstream look like? I think it's, you know, 
<laughs> I always use my, my wife and family as a test. So if I, if I go and talk to them and say, oh, did you know, yeah, and give them a fact, if, if they weren't aware of it or hadn't heard of it, <laughs> I think that, that's my mainstream barometer there. Yeah. Um, but that, that doesn't feel very far away at all. I think the interesting thing about this space is, again, going back to the customer, the main customer segment, you know, being, you know, children, teenagers, young adults playing these games, um, you know, bordering on the line between addiction or, you know, is this gambling and stuff. And I think a lot of other industries can take note of what, you know, what's happening in the esports and e-gaming space specifically around the payment journey to, you know, find that balance between creating a experience that allows gamers to continue gaming without friction in the payment experience, yet, as we talked about, giving enough um, friction to make sure that it's, you know, done in a sustainable, um, ethical um, way. Yeah, it's a key consideration uh, for almost any industry uh and i don't think esports is is any different um you'd think again going back to their distribution channel and being you know truly digital that they've got a, a better ability to control a lot of that and then perhaps something that was in the physical space yeah and i mean in in the beginning of uh of this podcast we kind of touched upon another aspect of the future you know will the big uh Esport players, you know, how popular will memorabilia become, collectible, trading cards? Will we start to see this as NFTs? Have have you come across anything yet in the NFT space? It's, it's a lot of my friends are talking about it, and yeah. um, we actually were looking to try and invest in in some NBA based NFTs, but obviously not esports related. Um, yeah. But you know, it feels like if there was an industry. Um, that could really capitalize on this. It would be someone who digital consumers and, and certainly esports or gamers would be the, the perfect use case. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think Jack Dorsey's first tweet just sold for $2.6 million. Right. So yeah. maybe there's a, a space for the world's best professional gamer uh, to, to start, you know, wrapping uh, his content into an NFT and, and selling that. Yeah, I mean, you can just imagine, you know, that moment when they break the record for most actions per minute, putting that up as a NFT as well. So I think there's, yeah, I mean, now we're kind of touching upon going into payments in, in the non-fiat uh, world. So I think, yeah, there's there's loads of different, um, you know, routes and um, ways in which these two industries or, you know, one industry, depending on, on how you look at it, um, you know, how it can really shape things and I think become, you know, more top of mind um, for, you know, anywhere in the world. Yeah, that's always a really interesting thing for me is when something comes out um, and then secondary markets spawn from it, secondary mm -hmm. tertiary markets just spawn from it so we're not just talking about games and downloadable content we're talking about going to watch an esports event and potentially selling merchandise and yeah. potentially selling um collectibles around that and and it doesn't stop there so you know people invest in in gaming infrastructure you know gaming chairs better screens with higher refresh rates and things like that so it's it's just a fascinating area that um that will grow and grow yeah 
Cool. Well, Matt, um, thank you so very much. I mean, this was really exciting. We got to talk about, you know, all the different payment journeys, um, you know, all the different players involved, the the opportunities, the secondary markets, um, the importance of LPMs. And I think, you know, for me um, personally, quite important, you know, ensuring that the experience is you know frictionless yet enough um friction and in making sure that this you know that the end consumer um in in regards to that being the gamers the young people are you know in a position where things don't become too dangerous for them um you know that they can take away many of the positives um, that are involved with um you know online gaming and, and everything Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. Great. So that's a wrap. Thank you to all of our listeners and stay tuned for the next podcast. Mm -hmm.